Before Gal Gadot and Leo Raz, who was Israel's biggest celebrity? He magnetized the world, literally, with his amazing feats of showmanship. Johnny Gould's Jewish state wouldn't be complete without a record of the life of Uri Geller. What is it, do you think, about yourself and your country? How much do you think you owe to your success that you come from Israel? I mean, could this have happened if you were a Romanian, a Briton? Uh, is there something special about being an Israeli with these skills? Uh, Johnny, you know, I've been interviewed thousands of times. No one ever asked me this question, and you're a brilliant presenter, host, uh, because no one asked me this. Stand by for the answer to that. Uri lived in England for decades. He was a best mate of Michael Jackson. He hung out with Mohammed Al-Fayed. He moved the ball just as Scotland prepared to take a penalty kick in a crunch football match against England at Wembley. Thanks, Uri. I was behind the goal as a spectator. Scots didn't like it. Now, you can imagine that after that event, I received thousands, to be correct, to be exact, 11,000 hate letters from Scotland. Uh, I mean, the postman just didn't <laughs> stop coming. It was unbelievable. I said, oh my goodness. Look, I have to admit today, Johnny, that probably what I did bordered on the illegal, definitely unethical. Uri's got a thing about penalties. Stay tuned for his rage at Harry Kane's spot-kick howler at the World Cup. Not everyone believed he was using the power of his mind. Let's get his take on the naysayers. And what's he doing now? Where is he? He's been tracked down to Old Jaffa in Israel. Stop the clocks. They'll start again when you stay tuned for the one and only... Uri So, Johnny, fire off. You can ask me whatever you wish. That is amazing. Thank you so much. What a privilege. Uri Geller, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Hey, Johnny, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show, whether it's called a radio show or a podcast or whatever. (laughs) But it's also a pleasure for me to be speaking to you. Thank you. The privilege is, is mine. The pleasure is mine. And you were extremely kind in the 1990s when you came on my radio show, national radio show, just after Gary McAllister missed the penalty at Wembley and somehow told me that you were involved in that ball moving using the power of your mind. Thanks for that. Oh, absolutely. Listen, <laughs> let me, let's rewind and go back to that moment. I was asked by somebody quite powerful in uh, the British football world to help England out, although England usually beats Scotland. But I don't know, there, were, there was some type of a fear. So uh, they put me in a helicopter and I actually uh, flew around Wembley uh, during the match. I could hardly see the footballers from the window, but when I heard in my headphones that Gary McAllister, the Scottish striker, got a penalty, I screamed in the helicopter. I had my British top on. And if you remember Cohen, the famous uh, footballer, I had his cap in my hand. uh, And I just screamed, one, two, three, move. Lo and behold, 
the move, the ball moved away from Gary McAllister's foot. Seaman caught the ball. He missed the penalty. And that was it. Because there were many cameras filming the event, you can actually see close up the ball moving away. Now, you can imagine that after that event, I received thousands, to be correct, to be exact, 11,000 hate letters from Scotland. Uh, I mean, the postman just didn't <laughs> stop coming. It was unbelievable. I said, oh, my goodness. Look, I have to admit today, Johnny, that probably what I did bordered on the illegal, definitely unethical, because it's one thing to inspire or motivate a team, but it is another thing to you know, interfere physically, tangibly with a game. And that's what I did. I don't regret it, but I'm sorry I did it because the Scottish fans. So because of that, I had to give back something to Scotland. So almost 14 years ago, I bought a Scottish island very (laughs) near Edinburgh. And do you still own it? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, a few months ago, I turned it into a micronation. So I have a flag. I have an anthem. Believe it or not, I have a football team. We Amazing. Are, we, we call ourselves the Lambies. I have a constitution. And let me tell all your uh, listeners, everyone who's listening right now, you can all become citizens of my new country, Lamb Island. And I'll tell you how you do it. You simply get on my website, which is urigeller.com. You pay $1, and that goes to an amazing charity, which is called Save a Child's Heart. This is based in Israel. This charity has saved over 6,500 children with open-heart surgery. Uh, Believe it or not, Johnny, half of them are Palestinians. So it's a win-win situation. You become citizens of my Lamb Island, my new country, and you help sick kids. It sounds very beautiful, but anyone who faces Lambie in any cup competition, let's just hope they don't get awarded a penalty against your team because uh, you'll be there on the touchline trying to move the ball again. Well, listen, you're you're (laughs) touching on a very sensitive subject because I just put something really nasty on. Uh, Let me just recall my words. I, I put up a cartoon and I said something of this nature. I'm really pissed off at Harry Kane. What on earth happened? Where was his confidence? Where was his skill? Where was his belief? How on earth did this happen? How on earth did he miss this penalty? Help me out, please. Johnny, you tell me what on earth happened there. Well, there was an extreme close-up of his face for both penalties, and he seemed very self-assured with penalty number one, which was duly dispatched. The second one, he looked like when he began his run-up, he was saying to himself, well, here goes, ready or not, and he was going to hopefully use his muscle memory to get the ball in the back of the net. Unfortunately, as he aimed for the roof of the net, it went above the goal and he wasn't mentally positioned to do it. The pressure was too great. And for a guy of great composure, which Harry Kane is, I'm a little bit saddened that 
this will be part of what he's remembered for. God willing, he will get another opportunity at a World Cup or a European Championship to redress that balance, a little bit like Stuart Pearce did when he missed the penalty at Italia 90, but then dispatched it against Spain in Euro 96. I hope that happens for Harry. Yeah, well, I hope so too. I hope so too. But with one penalty, just visualize the British people sitting in their homes, grandmothers, grandfathers, kids, everybody is waiting for that cup to come back after 1966. And this guy lets the whole country down. I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm allowed to voice my opinion. That's the way I feel. I feel depressed. I feel pissed off and I feel angry. But let's just, let's forget now football and you, you continue asking me whatever you wish. Yeah, we have to move on from football. It is an extremely yeah. sore point. Ori, there is so much to talk about. And in the days where you were producing um, entertainment and scientific miracles, you really became a, a truly world famous personality because this was presented as entertainment, but it wasn't. It was the mind in action. It was miracle activities with metal. There's been no one like you since or before. Well, you know, Johnny, uh, if I, I may, and I don't want your listeners to think that I'm glorifying myself or I'm kind of showing off or boasting, but um, yes, there was nobody like me. Uh, nobody bent metal before Uri Geller. I will tell you an interesting story that nobody knows when Salvador Dali heard about me, you see, I'm also a paint. Salvador Dali was really angry. He said, nobody can bend the spoons with his, the power of his mind. <laughs> Bring me this man. So somebody arranges me uh, to meet Dali. And uh, when I bent the spoon in his hands, he freaks out. He faints. I mean, he couldn't believe his own eyes. And I'll tell you why. Of course, Dali was a great surrealist. And did you know that Dali painted a bent spoon 10 years before I was born. This is why he just couldn't believe that this is real. And the moment I bent a spoon for him, we became the best friends. Now, the, the big show that launched my career was David Dimbleby. It was 1973, the BBC. I'm working with the CIA in America. I get a phone call from the BBC. Oh, Mr. Geller, we're inviting you to come uh, to England to show us your powers. I heard BBC, I jumped on a plane and flew to London because, hey, the BBC is huge. I want, I want now to, um, to introduce Uri Geller. He's a 26-year-old Israeli, at present working in the United States, uh, who's had various powers, which are described as psychic, since he was three. Uh, he's been denounced by some people as a magician, and certainly he's uh, a showman. He gives demonstrations all over the United States. This is the very first time that he's performed here in Britain, and it's also the first time that he's ever taken part in a major live television broadcast, as opposed to one that's been recorded. Um, at the moment, he's being examined by one of the largest think tanks in the United States, the Stanford Research Institute, who deal with everything from private industrial research to secret uh, Defense Department work. And their tentative conclusion, after watching Geller at work for a period, is we have observed certain phenomena for which we have no scientific explanation. 
I hope in a moment we will all be able to observe those phenomena. Ladies and gentlemen, Uri Geller. Uri, could you begin by just listing for us the kinds of power that you have, the kinds of things you can do? Well, uh, actually what I do is um, telepathy, and that is, as everybody knows, is receiving thoughts and uh, passing, passing thoughts, although I cannot sit here and know what you're thinking about me right now. It's very certain things that you really have to concentrate on. And then I have the other power, which I, which I read that they call psychokinesis, and uh, that is moving or, or bending or breaking uh, objects. It doesn't have to be exactly metal. I actually don't uh, know what it is exactly. I know I can describe you what I feel when I'm doing it, but what really happens to the metal or what really happens between you and me in telepathy, I, I really don't know. What, I have what, my what do you feel like when you're doing it? Well, actually, very normal. I don't go into any deep meditations or, or concentrations. If, for instance, if I try to bend something, I just uh, put my hand on it or rub it gently. Sometimes I don't even have to touch it. And all I say is bend, bend, bend. And if it doesn't bend, I say, please bend. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's really so. I'm sitting in the studio, and what I didn't realize is that there were millions of viewers. Somebody told me there were over 30 million viewers. I mean, everybody was watching the BBC. I think it was also Scotland, Wales, Ireland. Um, I mean, it was massive. And when David or one of the scientists handed me a fork, suddenly this idea don't, I came into my mind in a split second. And I looked into the camera and I screamed, everybody at home, go and get your spoons, go and get your broken watches. Uh, I sent probably 15 million people to the kitchen and everybody ran and got spoons and broken pocket watches that ceased working that belonged to the great grandfathers. And when I bent the spoon, lo and behold, those broken timepieces, and I'm sure many of your listeners are now saying, oh my goodness, I remember that because it was an unforgettable TV show. Uh, the BBC's telephone uh, system blew up. Hundreds of thousands of people were calling up the BBC in a panic. My spoon bent, my, my pocket watch started ticking, my grandfather clock. Uh, it was a, a phenomenon that nobody did understand, nobody could understand, and it still is. It's in a regard of a phenomenon of something that is supernatural, and I think that's what gave me the longevity in my career. And you did it on my radio show, and because it was the medium of radio, you bent a spoon in front of me, which was wonderful. Our listeners couldn't see that. But what you did... Uh, and what I saw with my own eyes was you imagining the sketch of a phone caller and she got it right. You got it right. You drew a house with a circle inside it. And she said, that's what I've drawn. And I'm telling you, that wasn't a plant. That was someone who'd phoned up. No, no, no. So it's not just about the physical bending of metal or the restarting of a clock. It's also about your capacity somehow to listen to someone's inner mind. What was that? Yeah, what it, it's basically called telepathy. Um, and um, if you get, if 
I'll, I'll just simply read out what the CIA says on their website about my abilities. And this is from the CIA. As a result of Geller's success in this experimental period, we consider that he has demonstrated his paranormal perceptual ability in a convincing and unambiguous manner. I mean, I've been tested by hundreds of scientists, including MI5, uh, University of London, Berkeley College, CIA, French scientists, Japanese scientists, under laboratory control conditions. Yes, I am hugely controversial, but it, it's actually the skeptics, the people who try to debunk me. Johnny, they created the enigma around me. They created the mystery, the mysteriousness. They created the debate. What they didn't understand is PR, publicity. They were giving me free publicity. And I actually have to go back 100 years and quote uh, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde said, there is only one worse thing in life than being talked about. And that's not being talked about. And that's what all those skeptics did for me. They created a mass hysteria. It's not real. He does it with sleight of hand. It's chemicals. It's laser beams. And controversy, I, I mean, look, show me a successful man and I'll show you controversy. But controversy fueled the wheel of my publicity. I never had an agent. I don't have managers. I don't have PR people. I don't have image makers. I just go with the flow. And without the skeptics, I wouldn't be who I am today. There was one guy on the television trying to debunk you. I saw the Dimbleby. I've seen it with my own eyes. I saw a guy, a scientist with a beard, doing what you did and then explaining in a way which I didn't understand uh, how you were doing it through sleight of hand or whatever way that he was claiming. Um, but I still didn't understand what he was doing and what you were doing and whether they were the same thing. That was not proven because I wasn't in the same room. You must have remembered seeing that as well. Um, look, the, the guy's name was James Randi. He died not long ago. He uh, was one of the huge contributors to my publicity. And he, what happened is I was invited onto an, a huge American TV show called Johnny Carson. And I can tell you that there I sat for 22 minutes humiliated. Nothing worked. He was a skeptic, Johnny Carson. He mm. smoked under the table. He was scoffing and sneering at me. And I thought, you know, I did bend the spoon in the hands of if you remember the actor called Ricardo Monteblanc. But uh, the only thought that went through my head uh, while sitting uh, on Johnny Carson was, Uri Geller, you are destroyed. Go back to your hotel, pack up and go back to Israel. So I went back to my hotel room, the Hilton in Los Angeles, fell on the bed. The British say I was gutted. I was, that, that was <laughs> it. Because everybody told me, if you make it in America... That's it. You made it. So I fall asleep. The next morning, the operator calls me up and she says, Mr. Geller, I have a Merv Griffin on the line for you. And I said, what do you mean the Merv Griffin? Just to put everyone in the picture, Merv Griffin was another major uh, television host, as big as Johnny Carson. So I get on the line and Merv tells me, Uri Geller, I saw you last night on Johnny Carson. I want you on my show. 
this week. <laughs> so that's when it dawned on me, hey, all publicity is good publicity. You know, Johnny, when I lived in New York, I used to carry a, 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 a tape in my pocket to measure the size of the articles that were written about me. I never read them. Uh, I just said, look, if you spell my name correctly, thank you very much. <laughs> now, you see, I am invested in your story, as are our listeners, because you are one of Israel's great exports. In a period of time where Israel was coming of age, there were, you know, terrible wars fought between 67 and 73. And then something cultural happened in Israel. You emerged as a mid to late 70s international star, and Israel couldn't stop winning the Eurovision Song Contest as well. There were a few miracles knocking about. I think even Israel qualified for the World Cup in 1970, which uh, when you measure the fact that they haven't qualified since is, is truly a, a great achievement. So what is it, do you think, about yourself and your country? How much do you think you owe to your success that you come from Israel? I mean, could this have happened if you were a Romanian, a Briton? Uh, is there something special about being an Israeli with these skills? Uh, Johnny, you know, I've been interviewed thousands of times. No one ever asked me this question and you're a brilliant presenter, host, uh, because no one asked me this. And what a great question. And uh, the answer is, I no, I don't think I would have uh, succeeded. I, I don't think if I was an American or a German or uh, a Japanese fellow uh, coming up with these incredible feats of mind power. Uh, no, Israel made Uri Geller. You know, the reason I came back to Israel, to my homeland, probably most of your listeners know the word Aliyah. I was born in Tel Aviv. By the way, I come from Sigmund Freud's family, if you didn't know that. My name in my British passport is actually Uri Geller Freud. Oh, really? Um, yes. And uh, Israel w was after the war. It was after the Six-Day War, in which actually I fought and I was wounded in Jerusalem. Yitzhak Rabin was my chief of staff. And, and in my museum here in Old Jaffa, I have lots of things that connect me to that era, to the war, to Yitzhak Rabin, and, and so forth. But our people lost their sons. People were grieving. People uh, wanted to believe that there is something out there. They wanted to touch spirituality. They wanted to touch the unknown. They wanted to feel that they, their sons that were lost and daughters, they're up there somewhere. So there is a very valid point to what you just asked me. And suddenly I come on the scene. And this is, again, synchronicity, because exactly today, a TV producer wanted to film me uh, for a documentary he was doing about Margot Klausner. Does that name ring a bell to you? Yes, it does. Tell us more. So she owned, she owned Herzliya Studios. That's the major, uh, you know, television productions and TV studios in Israel. It still is. And she was into the paranormal. She totally believed in me and she nurtured me. She was almost my mentor at that time. And she was a medium. She believed in sci sciences and so on. So that answers your question. I was made by the Israeli public, by the Israeli people. So that was it. That's what 
created me, my people, the Israeli people, the Jewish nation. And then when I went overseas, the Jewish people who lived in New York, in Los Angeles, in Germany, in Berlin, in England, uh, they all screamed, oh, my goodness, he's Jewish, he's Jewish, he's from Israel. Um, so that answers your question. I'm really delighted at that. And I know that you spent decades living uh, west of London. And I'm delighted from a personal point of view that you've gone home. In a sense, you've returned to Israel. And tell us about this museum in Old Jaffa. Is it a, a is it a curiosity shop or is it a commercial venture or, you know, is it a, a personal hobby horse? How is this museum in the scope of things in Tel Aviv, Yafo, is it is it uh, an advertised attraction or is it something slightly more eclectic, Uri style? Yeah. Okay, looking um, outside the door here, I have two main doors. People are coming up all the time, but the museum is not open for individuals. It's only open for groups. And let me explain how I found it. When I did Aliyah, six years ago, I walked with Hannah in Dizengoff Street, which is the main street in Tel Aviv, and a real estate agent comes up to me, oh, Mr. Keller, Mr. Keller, I heard that you came back to Israel. I have to show you this amazing space, this amazing building in Old Jaffa. So I tell her, look, I live already in Old Jaffa. No, no, it's not to leave. You have to see it. So I said, okay, show me. She opens the, the rusted blue doors, and wow, I, I, I cannot believe my eyes. I look into this space that is hundreds of years old uh, with arched uh, uh, it's just so incredible. And I immediately knew I'm going to turn this building into my museum. Why? Because I was a hoarder. I'm a hoarder, Johnny. <laughs> I never threw anything out. I didn't, I didn't throw my telephones out. I had the first Motorola phone in my Cadillac in New York. This is 50 years ago. I never threw my Blackberries out. Uh, but I collected things from Andy Warhol, from Picasso, from... Salvador Dali, um, I've got, I'm looking at the walls, I have Sigmund Freud's safe, Darth Vader, for instance, um, in one of my shows, an usher brings me a note and the note says, Uri Geller, my name is Dave Prouse, I heard that you're a Star Wars fan, if you want to meet the real Darth Vader, come to the lobby, and wow, and I kept that note, and that, there was Dave Prouse, who was the actor in, in Darth Vader's uh, costume, I have a gift from Gaddafi, a, a horoscope machine that was in the White House. David Bowie, Elton John, John Lennon, uh, the Moody Blues, Justin Hayward, Houdini, Elvis Presley, Stan Lee, my Cadillac that stood in the Museum of Israel. So, yes, I've got everything in here. Uh, it's just a stunning, mind-blowing museum. Everyone that comes here freaks out and they tell me, Uri, I've traveled the world. I've been in many, many museums. I've never seen anything like that. This is not a business venture for me. We donate a lot of money to, to the charity. So I'm never going to see the money I spent here uh, to refurbishing the building and getting everything moved here. But hey, I, I, I enjoy people seeing something that they never dreamt of ever seeing and also I have Kaitana, Kaitana is uh, summer schools. I had 800 kids here. They were all hypnotized by what they have seen in my museum. It is very much a, if you like, a, a catalog of your 
um, public facing life. And you mentioned Colonel Gaddafi amongst them. I mean, he was a, an associate of yours, wasn't he? Which um, was an unusual friendship to have considering Libya and Israel's relationship over the last 60 years. No, he wasn't a friend. Let me explain. If we have a few more minutes, of course, uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, why, why Gaddafi. Uh, we were invited to lots of parties while I was living in England, in London, and in Sonning on Thames in Berkshire. Uh, and one day, in a party, a, a Libyan diplomat walks up to me and says, "You're Uri Geller. I see you on television. You're from Israel." I said, "Yeah, I'm Uri Geller. I'm from Israel. I'm going to tell Gaddafi to send you a present." I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. So two months go by, small van drives up to our house. The driver takes off huge crate. He leaves. We open the crate and I can't believe my eyes. Inside the crate is this huge uh, model airplane, but big, you know, huge. I've never seen such a large uh, model plane. And um, aircraft, I say to Hannah, my wife, what is this? But it's so beautiful. It was packed in cloth and cotton and paper, and it came with a tripod. I say to Hannah, you know, it's so beautiful. Why don't we put it in our living room? So we put it up on the uh, tripod. And that plane, the Libyan Airlines, stands in our living room for years. One day, Gaddafi comes to New York to give a speech in the United Nations. But because he's... You know, he's a dictator, and some say he's a murderer. No hotel gives him a room. And he says, oh, I'm going to put my tent in Central Park. Of course, he doesn't get permission. Johnny, you won't believe who came for his help. Um, John, Donald Trump tells Gaddafi, look, Gaddafi, I have <laughs> a piece of land in Bedford, New York. Why don't you put up your tent there? I get a phone call from a Mossad uh, retired agent, Uri. Do you want to meet Gaddafi? I say, of course. I jump on a plane. I fly to New York. I walk into Gaddafi's place. Gaddafi stands in the corner with a brown galabia. That's the Arabic wear. Yes. He looks at me. He recognizes me. He walks over to me and starts screaming. I sent you the aeroplane so you can remind all your people what you did to us. Johnny, I was standing there quite embarrassed. The man is screaming at me, and I had absolutely no idea what he was shouting about, <laughs> what, what, what he was going on about. I go back home. I walk into the living room. I stand next to the aircraft, and I look at it. I stand there for three minutes. Then my eye looks at the logo. I look at the logo for 30 seconds, and suddenly... It dawns on me, and I understand what this is all about. Johnny, we shot down our Air Force, Israeli Air Force. We shot down this civilian aircraft with 113 civilian passengers, women and children. What happened? The pilot was Libyan French. The year was 1973, and he makes an error and he flies into the Sinai Desert. Right. We immediately bring up two Phantom, two Phantoms jet. One Phantom flies on the left, one on the right. Our pilot tries to communicate with a Libyan pilot. He doesn't answer. 
our pilot shoots from the cannons of the Phantom's warning shots, the plane continues flying. Our pilot, with his arm through the cockpit, makes a sign to land. There's an international sign. The Libyan pilot in his cockpit says, no, he goes with his arm, no. The chief of staff is David Elazar. 15 seconds go by, an order, shoot the plane down. The two phantom jets whittle the plane with their cannons. The plane dives, dives with 113 civilian passengers aboard, hits a sand dune in the Sinai desert, lifts up, and then totally demolishes. I don't know how, but out of 113 passengers, five survived. Wow. Why? Why? We don't shoot down civilian planes. Never, ever. We no. don't do this. I'll tell you why. Because we were afraid that this plane was flying to Dimona. Just to put your listeners into the picture, we have our nuclear plant in Dimona. We thought that this is a suicide plane and that this plane, this Libyan aircraft, is going to dive straight into a nuclear reactor. Wow. And then an explosion there would have killed probably 200,000 people. And that's a story. Unbelievable. And I have that plane that Gaddafi gave me to remind Israel what we did to them. So this is so mind-blowing that people are just, just their jaws drop. Now, 99% of the visitors here don't know this. The only people who remember these stories are the all-time Israeli pilots. And I had the head of Shin Bet here from that, that time. His name is Carmi. He, he stood under the plane and he said to me, Uri, I got to tell you a story. When that plane was shot down, by the way, Shin Bet is uh, the Israeli security services. He says to me, when that plane sh was shot down in 1973, I was injured in a car accident and they sent me to Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem. And believe it or not, my bed was next to the Libyan co-pilot's bed. He was one of the five people who survived the crash. Wow. That's a story. Uh, that's a fabulous one about Muammar Gaddafi, and thank you so much. The next one I wanted to ask about is your friendship with Michael Jackson, which went on for a long time, didn't it? He was a dear friend of yours. Yes, Michael was an amazing man. I'm looking at his last album, which I designed. If you all Google uh, Uri Geller, Michael Jackson, Invincible, I told Michael, let's do it in five colors, in blue, in orange, red, and green. He actually begged me to draw a drawing into the sleeve of his album, which I have. Michael was uh, just, you know, I never believed the accusations. Uh, it was another incredible quick story. Michael, when he was 16, he saw me on American television. He said, I've got to meet Uri Geller. I want to learn how to bend the spoon with the power of my mind. I had a show at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. After the show, uh, an usher runs to me. Oh, Mr. Geller, Mr. Geller, you're not going to believe this. Michael Jackson was sitting here right on the front row. I said, what? You mean the Michael Jackson? 
She said, yes, he, sat, he was sitting there with a disguise where we all recognize him. You can imagine I, I ran to the lobby like a, like a bullet, but he was gone. He was not there anymore. Decades later, I'm sitting together with Mohammed Al-Fayed, put you in the picture. He was, he's a billionaire who owned Harrods. And uh, they were very, very close to uh, Michael Jackson, his entire family. Just to remind you, Mohammed Al-Fayed's son, Dodi, died with Princess Diana in Paris. I was sitting in their home. Suddenly, the phone rings, and it's Michael Jackson calling Mohammed Al-Fayed from New York. And Mohammed says to Michael on the phone next to me, Michael, do you know Uri Geller? He's sitting next to me. I swear to you, I heard Michael shriek, Uri Geller! That's how I met Michael Jackson. (laughs) The final question, as time is running short, is that we've now had the return of Benjamin Netanyahu to being Israeli premier for a third time, the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. Many would say the greatest, notwithstanding those prime ministers of the past, Ben-Gurion and Begin spring to mind, Golda Meir as well. Uh, What do you make of the new Likud-led coalition, Uri? Okay, look, I don't want to go into politics. All I can tell you is this. I've known Bibi and Sarah. I've known Bibi for over 50 years from the days he was in the Sayeret Matkal, which is a very, well, the best uh, commando unit in Israel. I've known him for for over 50 years. And we are friends. And that's all I can tell you. I'm happy that he's back. I know Sarah also well. When Bibi visited London, we were together. I mean, I never felt safe with anyone else, only with Bibi. Uh, You you can go to my website, all of you, and look at what Bibi says about me and spoon bending. I think you'll be amazed and you'll smile at what (laughs) he says about my spoon bending. Everybody came in and they wanted to see Uri, because Uri is very famous. You know, he's uh, very famous Israelis. How many people know Israelis? Uri is a brand name for Israel. Anyway, they all came to see him. And they all wanted to have his spoons. He said, I can't do it right now. I can't bend all the spoons. They said, no. Well, he's very gracious, you know. But they said, could you bend our spoons? Could you bend our spoons? He said, oh, all right. So he stood at one corner of the restaurant, and he simultaneously bent the spoons of all the people who were there. All right? Now, tell me, do you have an explanation how he worked that as a trick? If you give me a convincing explanation how he worked it as a trick, I'll say, wow. He's a great magician, but he did it. I saw it, and I've seen it time and time again. So I think he has these special powers, uh, and I think he has one bigger power, and that is that he's what we call a minch. He's a human being. He's a friend. He has a good spirit about him. He cares about people. He cares about the country. He's a wonderful friend. That's, these are special powers that I respect. But... Um... I'm very happy that he's back. That's all, that's all I can say. I don't care about those who say, oh, my God, not, not BB again and all that. Uh, anyhow, listen, it was Johnny, it was fantastic being with you. I want to say a big shalom to all your listeners. Lots of positive and loving energies from all Jaffa. And Johnny, you're a great presenter. Uri, it's been my absolute pleasure. And in the last 30 seconds of your comments, it answered the question that I set you before only in Israel. You could only be from the Jewish state. Thank you so much, Uri. And thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Bless you and shalom to everyone. Shalom. 
Okay, Johnny. That was great. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Really, that that um, exceeded even my expectations of you, sir. Thank, Thank you. You are a really nice person. You're was a gentleman. And that was great. Listen, fun. tell me about your family. Uh, well, uh, I've uh... click subscribe and tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish State. There's some great episodes to scroll back for. How about Julie Burchill? I've got such a funny fact about Israel, Israel and Brummies. About 15 years ago, an Israeli bar advertised in a Birmingham... I'm not making this up, and everyone says I am. They advertised in a Birmingham local newspaper. Did they want to go and work in Tel Aviv? And it was because to the Israeli ear, the Brummie accent is apparently wildly sexy and drives them mad. That's unbelievable. Well, I know, yeah. I should try it out. <laughs> Do you think I can get anyone I wanted? Yeah. On the beach, all right. Oh, yeah. All right, kid. But I don't know where it came from, but it was a genuine thing. And how, if you Google it, I'm sure you'll How am you, Bab? <laughs> you want to come for a drink? And if you fancy supporting my work, you can do it with as little as a pound. Go to patreon.com slash Gould, Or if you're feeling particularly generous, give me a monthly donation at donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy.